The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey, obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Well, this passage that we tackle this morning has to do with suffering. Suffering as Christians and suffering well as Christians. We're getting close to the end. And last week we started our teaching with that ominous phrase, the end of all things is at hand. And we talked about Christ and his coming would be soon. But maybe, maybe Peter really, as he's penning this letter, is talking about, I'm almost done. <laughs> I'm almost done writing this letter because he is very much almost done. Uh, we are getting close to the end in that sense. And we have today and two more weeks. And as, as he winds down this letter, he's really going to finish off with a theme really where he began, where he began 16 weeks ago as we journeyed through this. He talks about how to suffer God's way. And he reminds us that God desires to use our suffering, to use our suffering for his glory and our joy. Remember in 1 Peter chapter 1, right at the beginning, he says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. And so here it is again. Peter's bringing up back this theme, almost really with the same kind of language and the same words that are used. The fiery trial. The fiery trial of our, of our life and of our struggle and of our journey in our faith. And we're going to tackle chapter 4 today, but I want to spend just a moment in chapter 1 where this theme first emerged. The trials are fiery. See, our struggles in life and our challenges and the ridicule or embarrassment. Think of the trials that come your way, particularly the trials of being a Christian in a, in a non-Christian culture and maybe an amoral or immoral context, whether it's your workplace, your neighborhood, uh, maybe even within your own family, you feel opposition because of your beliefs and you find ridicule. These are fiery trials, and they're fiery for a couple reasons. In one sense, they're bitterly painful, aren't they? They, they really sear the heart and mind. They're, they're painful and bitter in that way because this, these trials are not fun. They're troubling. You want everything in your, in your wants to just get beyond them and get to the other side where you find that comfort again. They, they weaken you, and they grieve you, and they cause you to be weary, and you just want to give up. But in another sense, they're fiery because they're fiery because they test and they prove and they purify the person. They remove impurities in our character the same way that fire purifies gold and silver when they are heated under fire. And it, and it brings the dross, the impurities, the sediment, the blemishes within this gold and silver. It rises to the top and then the, the blacksmith uh, scrapes it off. The silversmith scrapes off that dross so that what's left is purified gold. Peter aims to encourage us that in our trials and sufferings, as difficult as they are, they don't get the last word. God intends to use them for his glory and for our joy. They do not have ultimate power in our life. And it feels sometimes that our, the struggle that we're in right now, and at any season in our life, that struggle, like our whole life is about that, that our struggle is just taking over everything in our life. Peter wants to remind us that that is not reality, that God intends to use this for good. And do you, want, do you want to be strengthened in the midst of struggle? 
in the midst of trials? Do you want to not merely see, see the silver lining? Have you ever heard that people say, well, look at the silver lining, look on the bright side of things. Do you want to not just think about the bright side of struggle, but do you want to see the unshakable purpose in your suffering? Do you want to see God's purpose and encouragement behind your suffering? Do you want to not be thrown off by the struggles that, and derailed by surprises that come your way? Whether it's being let go of a job, whether it's a broken relationship, whether it is embarrassment or ridicule that comes from external factors. Do you want, not want to be surprised and thrown off? Well, Peter wants to encourage us that we don't have to be. I was going to save this sermon, Suffering God's Way. I was going to save this sermon for Mother's Day in a few weeks, but I thought, you know, maybe, uh, maybe we'll do something a little bit more encouraging on that day and uh, save something else for that. But Peter shows us five attitudes that point to us how to suffer God's way and therefore will result in us having this unshakable confidence, this unshakable courage in the midst of suffering, knowing that God is engaged in our suffering, that He is with us in our suffering, and that He intends to use our suffering for His glory and our good. And so here's five attitudes that point uh, to us suffering God's way. Let's begin. First, do not be surprised when you suffer. Remember that you're a stranger in this world. We're just going to go down these verses together, and each one we're just going to look at what he's talking about. The structure of this passage is really set up really well just to take one at a time and say, what do you want to teach us? What do you want to teach us about suffering God's way? And this is the first. From the very beginning, Peter has been telling us we're strangers. We are aliens. We are outsiders. As Christians in this world, really, we don't belong here in a sense. We are um, citizens of heaven. And because of that, we're like sojourners. We're journeying through this foreign land and this foreign place. And of course, we are going to be misunderstood. We're going to, uh, in our culture, you know, think of a foreigner, think of an alien in a sense, or, or a foreigner in your neighborhood. Now, they may eat the same foods as you, they may live in the same town, they may speak the same language, but there's something different. There's something unique and foreign about them. And Peter's saying, don't be surprised. Read verse 12 again, and, and I just want, I read over this dozens of times this week, and I was so, I don't know, refreshed by how modern this sounds. Look how modern this is. Don't be surprised at the fiery trials when they come upon to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised when you have hard time, as if something strange were happening to you. I don't know if you see that, but I, I just see this as like, wow, this it seems like a a very modern way of saying something just put into like this 2,000-year-old text. Why are you surprised that you're struggling as if something very strange was happening? It's talking about maintaining allegiance to Jesus while living in a world where people look at us in a strange way, where people don't understand, where people ridicule us. You're having a tough day. You're having a hard time. Why is this still surprising you? Why is this still a shock to you? Now, I go to a lot of coffee shops. I, uh, there's one in particular day of visiting a coffee shop that I will never forget. I go to a lot of them and, and a lot of different ones and a lot of different days, but this one stood out to me in particular. And it was last summer where I walked into a coffee shop. It was the middle of July. The heat was oppressive. It was just miserable outside. I'm burdened by the sun and the heat, burdened by just the mere existing in July in Tucson. And I go into the coffee shop. I go up to the counter, just oppressed by the heat and frustrated and patient. I don't do well when it's hot. Uh, and the barista says, how are you doing? How's it going today? Just a normal, casual greeting, as she probably did to uh, 100 other people that day. And I replied, oh, it's really hot outside. And she looks at me with the most condescending uh, look possible and says, you live in Tucson. It's summer. What did you expect? Time to get over it. <laughs> Take that tip right back. Thank you. I was stunned. I was speechless. But honestly, I was stunned and speechless because I was hurt, but because she was right. I mean, it was so painfully right. It was the first time I felt old in a coffee shop. Felt like that grumpy old man complaining about the heat. And I'm like, that, that's, that's who I am. That is what has become of me. And oddly, when I walked outside, the temperature by the time I walked outside was probably even a degree warmer. But it didn't feel as warm as it did walking in. She really put me in my place and she was very right. You are going to be very hot in a couple weeks. You are going to be very miserable 
in a couple weeks. It's supposed to be 92 on Tuesday, and that is going to be a cool day compared to what it will be in three to four weeks. And you will complain about it. Why? Don't you feel this is odd? Every single summer, it's the same thing. Why are you going to be surprised? Why are you going to grumble? Because you live in Tucson, you live in the desert, it gets very hot in the summer. We agree on this, right? Then why are we surprised that something odd is happening to us when it gets May and June? We're warm-blooded mammals, this is what happens. But we love to talk about our discomfort, we love to make our discomfort known as if there's something special about us that people need to uh, come in and comfort us when it's 110 outside, we're not that special. We chose to live here. How am I going to connect this to our passage? I think I can find a way. Let me show you. Let me try. With this in mind, Christians should not take suffering. We should take suffering and struggle much different than we do. Christians should complain much less. We should be surprised much less by the discomfort, by the embarrassment, by the ridicule, by the trouble that comes our way by following Jesus. We should not be surprised. And we should complain about it much less. And we should engage in our struggle with a much different perspective than those that don't know Christ, that are not Christians. We simply should not be shocked by suffering due to the reality that we believe that Jesus died for our sins and that makes us forgiven. That Jesus is alive today. That he rose from the grave. That he died on the cross for our sins as a substitute. And for everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We should not be surprised when people think that is stupid and silly. These Christians recently became Christians that Peter is writing to. And they thought, they genuinely thought that becoming a Christian would result in God's favor that would lead to a life of comfort and ease. And they found something completely opposite and they were shocked by it. And Peter is saying, why is this surprising to you? Jesus told you this would happen. He told his disciples, he said, he said in this life you will have trouble. In this life you will be hated, but do not be afraid, because I have overcome the world. And if God's very Son, if His journey led to great oppression, great ridicule, and eventually death as a sinless person, what should we expect as followers of Christ? Nothing less. And so it should come to no surprise that we will be hot in a few weeks. It should come to no no surprise that if we trust in Jesus, we will have trouble for our beliefs. And your willingness to endure such opposition and such discomfort, the Bible actually says it gives evidence that our faith in God is more than just rhetoric. It's more than just lip service. It actually resides in our heart that we truly believe in God because we are willing to endure the suffering that comes because we have claimed our allegiance to Christ in a context that is very hostile to being Christian. Peter says, don't be surprised. Suffering God's way, this is point number one where he goes into, have a different attitude about how you suffer. Are you having a hard time? Well, you're not meant to live on this side of the Garden of Eden. We're meant to be in the presence of God in full peace and comfort and shalom. But that shalom is broken because of sin. So why are we surprised that we are struggling? That the ground is cursed when we work it. That there is pain in relationships. That there is pain in emotions. That there is pain in our uh, pursuit of Christ. Let's not be surprised. Next, he goes on in our passage, next thing, suffering God's way, is not all suffering is your fault. And God's grace will cover you. He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You see, these, these Christians, again, they've, they, have, they have never been in their life, reasonably speaking, they've never been outsiders culturally. They've never been on the outside and they've never been marginalized and now they find themselves as marginalized in their culture, different from their neighbors. 
And they had never been at the center of cultural controversy. And Christianity was this new religion that was very unfavorable in their culture. They had never experienced prejudice. And so now they're being mocked and ridiculed and they're being shocked by it. And that's what's happening here. And first, let's, let's gain a little perspective on the matter of these Christians and the suffering that they are facing. The scripture is written to apply to people that are contemporary like the people today in Sudan, like people today in North Korea, like people today in China, people today that are being oppressed and humanly live in humanly oppressive context and cultures, the worst on the planet, where simply being a Christian will put at risk your very life. So let's have a little context and perspective about what Peter is speaking to. He is saying, not all suffering is your fault. You may die merely because you believe in Jesus. But God's grace is with you. His grace is sufficient for you and covers over you. And he's telling these listeners that you can expect that this treatment that will come to you is participation in Christ. And the endurance through suffering is evidence of that God's hand rests on you and that his favor is with you. And it's also evidence that if you endure this, his glory will be fulfilled in you, that he will spare you from this suffering and you will come into his glory. Because Christ suffered and he was glorified. And likewise, if you suffer in Christ's name, you will come into glory. You will be glorified. So we should result We should rejoice because the result of unjust persecution is that in our lives is positive. The result of this kind of persecution is positive. And so think about the opposition that might come your way if you choose to be a biblical Christian. What I mean by that is by interacting with God's word in such a way that saying, God, teach me how I should live. Teach me what I should believe as it relates to my faith, but also to my participation in the world around me. And then you go out from there living obedient lives. So being a biblical Christian is one who follows God's word, who brings your life under submission to God's truth and his word. And the ridicule that comes from doing that, Jesus says, This is a positive thing because God's glory and his favor rests on you. He reminds us that even when suffering is out of our hands, God does not intend to waste it. You say, but God, I didn't have anything to do with this. This wasn't my fault. This was completely an external thing. It was completely out of my hands. And God says, but it is still in my hands. It is still under my control. And I do not intend to waste this suffering and neither should you. But they're wicked people and they don't understand and it wasn't my fault and they should be punished. God is saying, I do not intend to waste this and neither should you. Christian suffering has a point. Christian suffering has a purpose. It's for God's glory and our joy. And God intends to make that known to us as we endure this suffering with faith. If we don't have a theology of Christian suffering that does not rest in God's sovereign plan, then so many things break apart in our life. We will be, for one, we will be surprised when we suffer. We will say, how could this happen? I was doing everything right. I was trying to be obedient. I was following God's word. I was praying every day and reading the Bible and I'm being nice to people around me. How could God repay me with such kind of suffering? Or we could say, we will likely to ask the wrong questions. We'll say, how could God allow this to happen? We will likely feel emotionally confused and we will say, I don't even know who I am anymore. I don't even know who God is anymore. We will feel insecure and unstable about our future. Or we might be angry and bitter with God and might, in the worst place possible, we might even leave the church and leave our faith altogether because of an unbiblical perspective on Christian suffering. God intends to not waste our suffering, and he has a plan, even when it's not our fault. And Peter says, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You know what this means? That in your struggle, in your suffering, you can believe with your complete heart and your mind that God has not abandoned you. That suffering should not be misunderstood as God's abandonment. 
suffering should not be misunderstood as God's lack of concern and his lack of care. The spirit of glory. The spirit of glory is the presence and power of God that has a particular goal in preparing for us an inheritance that is ours when Christ returns. So the spirit of glory, this is God's power within our life to say to us, I'm using this struggle, I'm, I'm, I'm discipling you, I'm disciplining you, I'm transforming you and shaping you to, to be prepared for the inheritance that I'm keeping in heaven for you. And so this suffering is going to be used so that I can match you up with the riches of heaven that will be yours one day. And the Bible calls this the weight of glory. So our suffering today is to prepare us for the weight of glory with God forever. And in this wonderful mystery, I don't know what it means fully, but it means in a sense that if the glory of God were to come upon us all right now, we would not survive. We'd be crushed by its beauty. We would be crushed by its majesty and the vastness of its weight. That's when the Bible talks about glory. It, it talks about it in a sense of, of physical heaviness, the way, that, the way that Marty McFly would use it. You know, like, that's heavy. And Doc Brown would say, what is going on? Is there something wrong with the earth's tilt in the future that things are heavier? You know, you don't get it, Doc. No, it's, it's, it's significant. It's weighty. It's important. It weighs on my life with great significance. And God says, well, in heaven, when Jesus returns, you will fully know as you are fully known. So you will know one day all the reality of the universe. And we will say, that's heavy. And Doc should say, that's right. It is. This is weighty. This is important. Well, the spirit of glory is meant to give us a foretaste, a taste of that future glory, to show us that the, the reality of, of God's perspective is right and true and good for us. And when we suffer, we are being transformed. We're being discipled. We're being shaped. And through this fiery trial, we're being purified. Do you see that? It is a joy that comes out of a deep abiding confidence that God is working in us. So a good theology of suffering will lead us to rejoicing. That's what Peter says. Instead of being surprised, rejoice in your suffering. Rejoice in my suffering? Yes, because it indicates that you believe that you have a confidence in God that he's working in you. It was C.S. Lewis who said this, pain insists upon being attended to. Isn't that true? God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You cannot ignore pain. Whether it's a cut on your finger, whether it's a queasiness in your gut, whether it's a headache, whether it's a back pain, you cannot ignore it. And that is the very purpose that God intends to use pain for, that we cannot be... It, it needs to be intended to. It needs to be paid attention to. It needs to point us that God is working in us. Do you see this? At the very least, do you see God working in you, in your pain, in your suffering? Many of you might now be going through a trial, a fiery trial, and you wonder, I know God intends this for good, but I'm confused. I don't know what is going on. At the very least, let me encourage you in this. Do you see at the very least that he's working on you? That he, is, that he is, desires this pain through this painful means to, be, to reach into your brokenness, to open up your heart, to be a megaphone, to wake you up and say, and at the very least, God is saying, I just want you to know me more. I want to address your pain. I want to address your insecurity. I want to address your fears. I want to address your worries. I want to address your fatigue. I want to talk with you. I want to be with you. I want to rest with you. I want you to know that I am with you. If you know nothing more in your struggle, do you know that the spirit of glory, God's power, rests with you? And he intends not to waste this. Have you ever been bothered to ask the question, God, what do you intend to do with this suffering? Do you ever bother to ask yourself, what is God trying to tell me? This can be a great first step to, to understanding the presence of God in our suffering. By stopping, by getting quiet, by forcing ourselves to get to a place 
of solitude with God, face to face with him, and say, God, what do you intend to do with this suffering right now? And then you sit and you wait and you listen and you pray. Spiritually, a trial or a trouble is that which shows us what we truly desire, what we truly want, what we truly worship. Think about that. And this is something to rejoice in because we cannot expect to grow in God's love without trouble, without trials that expose our misplaced desires and replace them with a trust in God. Because sometimes trouble comes not at a fault of our own, but because God is wanting to take something from us that we would never give up on our own because we love it too much. Trouble in our life is something that God uses to say this. You cannot continue in this way of life if you desire to be faithful to me. This is how God will use trouble, and this is what God is saying to us when we do have trouble. God is saying, I love you enough to bring this into your life because I need you to change. Because in changing, you will be more like me. And in being more like me, you will understand the love and the depth and the breadth of my treasure for you. So not all suffering is our fault. And we can rejoice when we encounter suffering that is not our fault because God's grace is working. He is with us. He is present. And next point that Peter wants us to know is this. You see, we need to see the other side of suffering because the first side of suffering is that some suffering is not your fault, but the other side is but suf some suffering is your fault. And even still, God's grace covers you. Point number three, some suffering is your fault. He says, do not suffer as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer, or as a meddler. It's one thing to suffer unjustly for things that were not our fault. It is yet another thing to suffer because of sin, suffer because of something that we did. Isn't it an interesting group of things that he talks about? Do not suffer because you're a murderer. Do not Find yourself in a situation where you are bearing the consequences of your sin because of killing someone or stealing something or doing works of wickedness or just meddling in people's business, being a busybody, being bothersome. You're going to put those together in the same sentence? that he does. If you steal and are caught, you cannot label this as Christian suffering. This is what Peter wants us to know. And that's obvious, but there are less obvious things, right? You cannot label that as you're just, you're just persecuting me because I'm a Christian. We can't do that. But if you are unfriendly and if you're habitually selfish and you are habitually self-centered in conversations and people don't want to be around you anymore and people reject you because you are difficult to be with, it is not because you're suffering as a Christian but because you're not fun to be around. <laughs> I think that's what Peter is saying. He's saying you cannot say, well, Jesus, has abandoned, Jesus abandoned his friends too. You see, Jesus died alone, and so me being alone, that's just suffering as a Christian. And Peter wants to say, no, you are not a good person. It doesn't work that way. We cannot just put the stamp that I'm suffering as a Christian because of all the trouble that's coming into my life. And Peter is saying sometimes we suffer because of our sin. And what do we do when we suffer because of avoidable sins? This is a good question. This is harder to answer, I think, because it's easy to answer. How do we suffer? What do we do when we suffer for unavoidable sins? Well, we trust in God. We lean on his grace. We lean on his knowledge of his, of his, of his sovereignty. We trust that he will vindicate us and bring justice. Well, what do we do when we suffer the consequences of our wrongdoing? He says... If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In this still, you have the grace of God. When you suffer because of your sin, God's grace still covers. And this is very good news. When we suffer for wrongdoing, it is in that moment we should apply the gospel truth. And the gospel truth is this. It is in the sense that we should believe in trusting God for what it means to be Christian, that a Christ follower is the recipient of God's affection and grace, that he or she is the recipient of unmerited favor, 
So when you have a bad week as a Christian, this does not put you on probation with God. It does not put you on a time period of, of, of a temporary, um, temporary hold on knowing God, finding his favor, being accepted by God, being in, a, in an unbroken relationship with God. You do not have to repay the debt of your sin. You do not have to find your way back into his grace, for grace is unmerited. It is covers over our suffering when we are, are find ourselves in suffering through injustice, and it covers over our suffering when we find ourselves at the hands of our own sin. When a Christian sins, he or she is not put on probation. You do not work yourself way, way back into God. He says, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Here is what this means. When we look at the essential nature of saving faith, of what it means to believe, and we see that it replaces shame with hope, fear with joy, doubt with confidence in God's love, we can praise God for the means that he has given to us to get our attention to bring attention to our sin and praise God for the grace that covers over our sin. And from there, we then proceed through repentance and obedience to glorify God in our life. So here's what it looks like. We say, God, I am suffering because of my sin. I am ashamed of it. I am broken because of it. And we should say, thank you for using this this thing that I had done, that I have done, that I am doing, thank you for bringing it to my attention for what you desire for me. Thank you for bringing this sin to my attention because if you had not done this, if I had not have, had bore the, the consequence of this sin, I probably would have never stopped. So thank you for your grace to bring it to my attention. Forgive me for my sins because Jesus died on the cross for this sin and help me now to walk in a life obedient to you, glorifying you from this day forward. And thank you for the grace that covers over even the worst of sins. Whether I be a murderer, whether I be a thief, whether I be a liar, an evildoer, whether I be even just a bother to my friends, your grace covers over that. And so by his grace, we do not need to be ashamed of our sin, but we receive his grace and walk confidently in his forgiveness trusting still in what he intends to do with it. It is that feeling when you, you feel like a complete failure, you know, when you have sinned and you are reaping the consequence of your sin and you're embarrassed and you know it's your fault and you've complete, you feel like a complete failure when you're reaping the consequence of your sin. You're ashamed. And instead, we receive his grace. We turn from sin and we glorify God. Here's what I've learned about being a sinner for a long time. Here's what I've learned over the years. What I've learned is that when we sin in something that God has asked us to be obedient in, He is so merciful, He is so gracious, that He will give you another chance, probably before you even expect. God will give you countless opportunities to glorify Him in that very way that you have fallen. And in those moments, you, say, you think that, you, that God gave you a chance, he gave you a test, you failed at that test, and he will never give you that opportunity again to make it right. But what I have learned is that God is bountiful in his, in his he's bountiful in second chances. And what I mean by that is we feel shame. God, I, I, I blew it. You gave me that opportunity and I just chucked it away. And God says back to us, I'll give you another chance. I will give you another opportunity. I will orchestrate the opportunities in your life for you to mature and to be obedient and to glorify me again. But what if I botch that one? What if I mess up that one? What if I sin again and I don't learn of anything? He says, with my fatherly love, I will discipline you again and I will give you another chance. I will not abandon you. I will continue to transform you. And I am so thankful that he works in that way. Because if he didn't give me a second chance, then then there would, be, there would be nothing left to sin at. There would be nothing left to do. Because every chance he has given me and every opportunity, I have regrets, I feel shame, and I wish that I could make it better. And God says, I will restore. I'll give you another chance. So if you have felt ashamed, if you have felt like ashamed, reaping in, your, in the consequence of your sin, and you're saying, I had an opportunity and I sinned, and God will not give me another chance, 
He will. So you can just ask Him for it. You can say, God, would you give me another chance to be obedient in that moment? Prepare my heart, prepare my mind to be ready for that test, that fiery test when it comes, and guard me and give me the power to not be tempted. So God's grace is sufficient for our struggles, whether avoidable or not. And then Peter offers us some more perspective, and he says this as it relates to suffering. Always remember this. Those who belong to Christ are spared from a much worse suffering. This is a tough couple verses to tackle, I think, but it shows us that God's judgment is so intense against sin, that God hates sin so much, that God is purifying, that his fire is so hot for sin that even his children are not spared from the heat. That his anger and is so great that he can't help but get on some of us. He says, if I won't even spare my children whom I love, how will I treat those whom are my enemies? How will I treat non-believers? This is a sober verse, is it not? It's kind of like a, okay. What Peter is wanting us to say is that when we suffer God's way, when we are hurting, and we reflect on our inheritance in Christ, there should be something in us that says, but look what I don't have. Look at the suffering that I have been spared from. I have been spared from the condemnation of God. I have been spared from God turning his back on me. I have been spared from his anger and from his wrath. And there are people who will not be spared from that. It is hard to work through this passage without being honest about those things. And so when we suffer, even in the book of Hebrews, the writer says, you haven't died yet. He says, you haven't been crucified on the cross, and that happened to Jesus. And so things aren't as bad as they could be. And that's not contrite. It's, it's, I mean, it's not trite. It's not uh, careless to say that. It's actually something that we should remember, that we should say, yes, I am suffering. I am either sick in my body. I am sick in my mind. I am weary in my thoughts. I am under the penalty of the law. But God loves me still, and I'm spared from his rejection. This is good news. Thank you, God, for helping me put it in perspective. Every day I'm, I'm struggling, I'm weary, I don't know if it's going to get any better, but I have been assured that there is an expiration date to this struggling. And for some, there is not. For some, and for many, the Bible says, there is not only not an expiration date to struggling, but when Christ returns, the struggling is exponentially paramount and bigger and eternal and painful. And that should cause us to take a step back and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. That it is good to remember that it could be worse. That this suffering for some is just a foreshadowing of greater suffering to come. But for me, this suffering is a foreshadow that it will end, that there will be joy, that there will be peace, that there will be a ceasing of all struggle and all sin, that this suffering has an end and it does have a limit. And God assures us that both the intensity and the length of this suffering is temporary. (sighs) That's good news. Isn't this good news? Can I see some? Yeah, this is good news. Brothers and sisters, this will end. Your sorrow will end. And it will be met with joy eternal. Your pain in your body, whether it's sickness, whether it's emotional, it will have an end. And it will be replaced with dancing with God. Your confusion, your doubt, your weariness will be, will be replaced with strength and clarity when Christ returns. Peter says, if you want to suffer God's way, remember that. Have an eternal perspective that you have been spared from the worst that God has to offer. And you'll be replaced with the best that God has to offer. You are heirs to the inheritance of the riches that belong to obedient children, of which you are not, but his righteousness has been credited to you by faith. What Christ had earned because of his perfect life, you get to reap the benefits of that. This is good. And lastly, Peter reminds us 
that God is faithful to his plans and suffering never gets the last word. Truly, I think that this is my favorite part of this argument for suffering God's way. And it is my favorite part of this passage. And he chooses a title like this. He wants us to remember a unique thing, thing about God and who he is and what he has done. And that unique thing is this. He calls God by the name of Creator. He says this. Do you see it? He says, let us suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Peter could use any word any title for God that he chooses, and we would never notice the difference. He could say, entrust their souls to a faithful God while doing good, a faithful father, a faithful a provider, a faithful protector, but he uses the word creator. It is a title of God that he wants us to remember something, and what is he wanting us to remember? He wants us to remember, hey guys, you're suffering, you're struggling, remember that God is a creator God, and he is the father of all things seen and unseen. He is the cosmic governor. He is the cosmic sustainer. He is the king who rules over all of creation and rules over the hearts of men and, wing, uh, and women and, and children and kings and servants. He creates all things and directs all things to come to pass to fulfill his plan for all of creation as creator God. So as creator God, he has a plan for your suffering. Entrust your soul to him. Entrust your life to him while doing good, while he reveals to you in his time the purpose of your suffering. We sang this song, How Great Thou Art, when we see all thy hands have made. There's a purpose here in this lyric that we are meant to look around and see God is a creator. God is in charge. God is a sustainer and governor and king over all. What could we do but see the purpose and plan of God in this momentary affliction? The creator of the universe has invited us into his rest. He has invited us into his plan to rest from our suffering while he is orchestrating all things to come to pass according to his pleasure according to his will, according to his plan. As Peter mentioned to us in our call to worship this morning, that we come to worship burdened. And least of all, we come as imperfect people, and the creator of the universe invites us into his rest. He says, guys, I have overcome the world. I have put in place my plan and my decrees and my providence to sustain all of creation, to come about in such a way that is according to my good plan. And nothing will happen on this earth, including your suffering, that is apart from my plan. No one has the ability then to give us rest but the Creator God. When, where can we learn about God as a, His agenda and his heart, apart from him being creator, he made mankind in, in his image, male and female. So when you think about, well, where does the Bible talk about the creator God and his, his image and his heart and his design and his desire? Well, of course, in Genesis, God made everything and he saw that it was very good and he made mankind in his image, male and female, according to his likeness. And as a result of evil and sin coming into the world through Adam's sin, Mankind did not lose this image, did not lose this likeness, but it was comprehensively affected, comprehensively broken. We call this the fall, where what was good and perfect is now broken, but not lost completely. This means that we have a capacity to love, but our love, we don't do it rightly. This means that we have a capacity to respond to God, but we don't do it obediently and faithfully as sinners. It means we have the capacity to think, but we do not think purely. And instead of abandoning his creation, God sets in place a plan to redeem it, to rescue it, to put us through the fire until we are purified, until we are more like him. This means he's always working below the surface. He's always working below the surface of your suffering. 
So he uses fiery trials to poke at us, to test us. You know this, the fiery trial, and the, when something is being fired and seared, you know, think of, you, think of cooking a steak, am I right? Think of, <laughs> think of a steak under fire, and you poke it. What are you, what are you poking it for? You're, you're poking it to see if it's done. And at worst case, you, you'll, you'll do what you're not supposed to do, is you'll cut it open to see if it's done. And you'll say, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And you try to put it back together. You say, I think it needs a little longer time. This is what God, this is a loose analogy, so don't. This is what God intends to do with us when he puts us under fiery trials. He is, he's intending for us to be matured, to be discipled. And he pokes at us. And sometimes he cuts at us. And he's testing us like a fire does. And he's saying, is it done yet? And God's agenda, what does it mean to be done? Well, his agenda is to make us more like Jesus. And he will continue to poke. He will continue to cut. He will continue to discipline us like a loving father so that we would be matured to be more and more like Jesus. So we'd be transformed into his image. And these trials are God's way of drawing us closer to himself and making us more like him. He will never give us anything that is not good for us. You don't have to believe that right now. But I want you to reflect on it. And if he will not give you anything that is not good for you, that means that anything good for you he will not withhold. To trust God like that is to trust to suffer God's way is to believe in him as a creator God that intends to use our suffering for our good, for our glory, uh, his glory and our joy. And if you follow the storyline of the Bible from beginning to end, you'll see how evil and suffering will enter into the world and how God addresses the problem of evil, the problem of sin, the problem of suffering in the world with Jesus Christ. And when we look at our own struggles and we should hear Jesus' words when they are said to his disciples in John 16, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. All things, Jesus is saying, all things, says this in Colossians, they were made for me and by me and through me and in me. That includes you. It includes the trials that you're going through. It includes your suffering as creator God. So we suffer God's way by entrusting our souls and our life to him who is faithful, who is good, and does not waste an ounce of our suffering. Not an ounce of our suffering goes to waste, but it is meant to expand our capacity to love him and to know him more. So you are going to encounter suffering soon. You may be encountering it right now. Today, tomorrow, on your way home from church, today, let me give you some questions or statements that you can reflect on that follow kind of our, Peter's argument in this passage as we close with these thoughts. And I want you to think deeply on them. There are questions, I want you to talk to yourself in this manner. First, why did I think that everything would be perfect in my life? Am I not made for this world? So of course there would be conflict. I need not to be taken off guard by my trouble. Tell yourself this. Think on these things. When you struggle, you should say to yourself, why am I surprised? I live on this side of the Garden of Eden in a broken world where there is sin and wickedness and I'm not made for this world. I'm spared from it. But in this time I'm living in the world, of course I will have trouble. Second, Jesus, I have been wrongly hurt. Help me to remember that you also wrongly suffered and help me to be humble even when I suffer unjustly. Can you tell that to yourself? Can you preach that to yourself? God, I didn't do anything wrong. It's not fair. I don't deserve this and you may be right. And then God's word speaks to us and says, I know someone else who went through the exact same thing. God's son, Jesus. He knows your suffering. He sympathizes with you. Reflect on him. And if you suffer unjustly in faith, you will receive his glory. Third, God, the consequences of my sin are almost unbearable. 
Use this struggle to draw me closer to you and to make me more like Jesus. Can you recognize your sin? Can you recognize the consequences? And can you go to the gospel that is sufficient to cover over even the worst of sins, whether it be a murderer or whether it just be someone who is just not a good listener and has been rejected by people, who's someone who's not patient, someone who's not kind? Have you been rejected? Have you been hurt? Can you say something like that? Use this to draw me closer to you because I want to be more like Jesus. And fourth, the suffering is nothing compared to utter condemnation. Thank you for being present with me in my suffering. And thank you for dying for me so that my struggles will turn into joy, my weeping into dancing. Suffering, God's may means, means having that perspective that you are spared from God's anger, and instead, you have his love. You can rejoice in that. And lastly, help me to trust in you as the sustainer of all things. Help me to trust in your good plan even when I do not understand. Thank you for doing whatever necessary to bring about your good plans for me. Help my unbelief. If you can speak to yourself and preach to yourself in that way, which is a biblical model for how to suffer God's way, you will find encouragement. You will make the most of what God is wanting to teach you. You'll be made more into the image of Christ and you will, you will gain an, an unshakable strength that comes from the, the power of God to endure, not just to endure your suffering, but to have joy in the midst of it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our Creator God, who created all the earth and everything in it, the seen and unseen, there is nothing out of your hands. There is not a single rogue molecule and atom in this universe that is doing as it desires apart from your will. This is both a mystery that is difficult to understand, but it is also a great comfort in knowing that our destiny does not rest in our good doing, it does not rest in our character, it does not rest in our record, but it rests in your good plan and promise to us. And you've promised many things. You have promised that if we suffer for you and in your name, that what waits for us is glory. That you are with us even now. We depend on you in our suffering. You've promised that we have an inheritance that is unfading and imperishable, that it, that it will last forever and kept in heaven, that you maintain this reward for your children. You protect it and we're hidden in you. You promise that we're spared from greater suffering of your condemnation, that this suffering is really just a shadow. It is merely just a glimpse of how bad it could be. But you promise that this suffering has a, a limit, that it has an expiration date, that it is temporary. And you've promised one day to make all things new, to wipe away every tear, to mend every broken bone, to restore every relationship that has been hurt. And we will be in your joy and your peace forever. We really want that. We want that sooner rather than later. But as we wait for you, Lord, would your presence be with us? Would your power be made perfect in our weakness? Would we suffer your way? so that we can know you more. In Jesus' name, amen.